This is Risky Women Radio, a show to connect, celebrate and champion women in risk, regulation and compliance, sharing insight and perspective from the most influential members of our global Risky Women Network on the latest developments we need to think about, the challenges we should all talk more about and the innovation we are most excited about in governance, risk and compliance. Bringing together the hundreds of senior women professionals already connected with a new emerging group of leading women and men. I'm Kimberly Cole, your Chief Risky Woman. Welcome to Risky Women Radio. Today's Risky Women are Benedict Nolans and Mina Zatwani. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. So um, Benedict and Mina were both present at our inaugural Risky Women event uh, that we held in Hong Kong way back in 2014 and have both spoken at our Risky Women breakfast event, which was fantastic when we did a breakfast with the regulators. So let's see where the conversation takes us today. Um, I imagine we're going to hear financial crime, AML, fintech, regtech, and hopefully we can get into a bit of diversity and inclusion as well. So very briefly, let me introduce our two Risky Women. Uh, Benedict is an accomplished senior executive in the financial industry with 20 years of global experience and is currently the head of Global Regulatory Affairs Asia and Europe for Circle. She's an in-depth experience in implementing risk governance frameworks, leveraging data analytics, and she's also known for her leadership in fintech and regtech, having produced several reports for IOSCO and the industry. She has law and MBA degrees, and I'm going to leave her to share even more of her accomplishments and the journey that she has been on. Mina was formerly executive director at the HKMA. Uh, Mina was responsible for overseeing uh, the enforcement function of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, including handling of complaints against authorised institutions, as well as the supervision of the anti-money laundering and financial crime management. She also sat on the board of directors of the Financial Dispute Resolution Centre. She worked in the office of the General Counsel as Deputy General Counsel before her appointment as Executive Director of Banking Conduct in 2010 and Director General Enforcement in 2014. Mina is qualified to practice as a solicitor in Hong Kong, England and Wales and the Australian Capital Territory. And she is now on the board of Pathfinders, which I look forward to hearing more about as well. So let's kick off, uh, Benedict, with you telling us a bit more colour around your career journey. So thank you, Kim, for for that uh, introduction. So my career journey really began, let's say, before I started my career studying in Belgium. I'm originally from Belgium. Uh, From there, I had decided I wanted to really start in America. So I went uh, to the University of Chicago and after that uh, started a job in New York. Uh, and then through real coincidences, I ended up uh, in, in Hong Kong in uh, 1997. And just for your memory, that is the year of both, number one, the handover of Hong Kong, uh, and secondly, as well, the start of the Asian financial crisis. So that was the start of my career. Uh, I started with uh, Goldman, stayed there for 10 years. Uh, after that, I went to Credit Suisse for five years. And then I got uh, proposed to go to the SFC and had a totally new operation called Risk and Strategy Unit, uh, which I I obviously uh, accepted. I stayed with the SFC for six years. 
And uh, recently, I made a totally different move into really into the fintech sector, uh, and in fact, into the crypto sector. So, and I'm now with uh, Circle, which is one of the two uh, leading US uh, players in this very new space. Fantastic. Um, lots, I think, we can get into and talk about there. But Mina, let's hear a little bit more about your journey. Thanks, Kimberly, for inviting me um, to this Whiskey Radio, um, Woman Radio. Um, I can say that I've had a very interesting career, although slightly different from um, Benedict, because it was exclusively in the public sector. Um, I majored in business administration, economics, and political science at Hong Kong U, and then joined government as an executive officer. And after working there for three years, um, I got a government legal training scholarship and went to England to read law. Um, and then to get that scholarship, I had to be bonded for the government to, to work for the government for five years. But actually, I ended up working for government for 10 years um, in the attorney general's chambers and did a lot of very interesting work, including going to the Privy Council. Uh, but mainly, I specialized in judicial reviews. Um, and because I did, I suppose, OK, um, they sort of um, picked me for rapid promotion and grooming. Um, it was prior to the handover and they wanted to localize. But I felt that I really don't want to do criminal prosecution and the like for two years. So I decided to apply to the Monetary Authority and I was fortunate to be accepted and I joined as a senior counsel, not meaning a silk, just, you know, <laughs> senior, <laughs> senior manager level. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, have been there since last year when I actually retired. Um, but I, while I was in the legal office of the MA, I specialized in banking advisory and litigation work. And my break came after Lehman Brothers when there was, you know, like 20,000 complaints and the MA was completely, you know, uh, inundated with complaints. And LegCo formed a subcommittee um, and I was asked to be part of the team that prep um, Joseph and our deputy chief executive, YK Choi, um, for the subcommittee proceedings. Um, and I ended up going to LegCo with them for like 13 times. It was quite an experience. I think um, because of this, I was given the rare opportunity to move to policy work. Um, uh, first as a head of the banking conduct department where I stayed for five years and also um, an amazing journey that I had there. Uh, but my last post was the enforcement of um, an AML supervision um, and again, a very interesting experience there for about three years. I'm proud to say that I was the first um, female um, ED to retire at the age of 60. Um, and I think my guiding principle, um, because I know that this is all part of, you know, trying to mentor, mm. our, you know, yes. younger generation. I think what I've, you know, my, well, you think it's a success. You know, my successful career has been in a large part due to the attitude that, you know, work is service. Um, work in the, done in the spirit of service is worship. So that's the attitude I have. And I always volunteered to do more than I was asked to do. Excellent. And, I mean, you've already mentioned some of the, the projects that, you know, you were lucky enough to, to work on. And I know, um, Benedict, you've also done some amazing um, projects, especially work with IOSCO and stuff. Can you share more about, you know, some of the more interesting projects that you've been involved in? 
Well, I, I have to say I can't complain about any specific part of my career because in every part I've been involved in, in a lot of uh, interesting uh, work. Uh, maybe to, to take through the different pieces, in, in Goldman uh, it was the very early years of Asia, you know, so that's about 20, 21 years ago. We were actually a fairly small office uh, and even for the region we had only a bit over a handful of compliance officers. So you ended up doing everything, including um, what I call offense and defense. So offense is building out offices, are acquiring new companies into the company. For example, we acquired the footprint in Australia, actually, where you come from, <laughs> uh, as well as in India, and that was greatly exciting. Uh, we set up offices in Korea, in China, etc. So um, building these businesses was, was a lot of fun. And then there was the defense part. The defense is when, when we got uh, inquiries into different businesses. Uh, so uh, And that happened across the region. Uh, and I've been doing a lot of work in that. And, and I enjoy both, both the building as well as the defense side. Um, in Credit Suisse, I would say the highlight of, of my five years there was to have a really large team, 150 people. Uh, it's a great management platform. Um, I enjoy management. So for me... It's not a stretch. I enjoy it when people have problems and you can help them solve. Uh, I also enjoy uh, having happy people below me. So I very much emphasize uh, protecting them when they actually uh, need the protection from the umbrella above them, which I do consider that management is, is a role that it, it plays. And then, as you say, in the SFC, there, uh, I, I would say the real exciting part, you just uh, touched upon it, for sure, was uh, all the international work, mm -hmm. uh, the IOSCO work, the work with the FSB, working with BIS, working with also many industry participants in these contexts and trying to bridge between what the industry needs, our things, our can achieve, and what the regulator wants or expects or wants to change. So... Um, greatly exciting on all fronts. Uh, and now I'm in the crypto space and I would say I'm, I'm now dealing with all of these aspects into one very early stage industry. So very much the early building stage, we're actually even putting the, the policy foundations now in place. So I'm, I'm let's say, relying on, on my experience of, of, let's say, the Goldman job, the CS job, also the public policy job uh, at the SFC. So. Interesting, yeah, so how all of these things come yeah. together. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we can get into a bit more about that. And what do you think was the biggest risk that you've taken in your career? I think the two biggest risks was first to come to Hong Kong and specifically at that time with, with uh, I said, both the, the handover at the time, people were greatly concerned. And in fact, the reality is a lot of people went the other way and I was coming this way and I probably had the opportunity to come this way because a lot were moving the other way. <laughs> so my bet was that Hong Kong would stay Hong Kong and Hong Kong would stay successful uh, and extraordinary. And, and over 21 years, that's certainly been true. So, th so that's uh, been paying off for 21 uh, years, that decision. Um, and by the way, the choice was, in my, in my case, to stay in New York or to go back to Belgium. So these were the choices. And in that sense, I just literally moved to the other side of Earth. So I can definitely tell you my parents were not happy at the time <laughs> because uh, they very much uh, expected me to return to my homeland uh, and, and to stay in Europe from there on and, and not 
to go to the other side of Earth. I'd already gone to one side, which was US, and then I flipped over to the other side. So at least they were confused. The second, uh, you could say, um, risk is to now join a very, very new sector uh, that is still at very much uh, inception phases. Mm, yes, um, and we'll get into a bit more about that. And what about for you, Mina? What do you think are some of the risks that you, you've taken along your journey? Um, I think the fact that I moved from legal, the legal office to policy work um, was a big risk that I'd taken because, um, you know, frankly, I hadn't done direct policy work. And also I was moving into a, a new area for the MA uh, post um, Lehman Brothers collapse. Um, and, and actually, I'd never had any management experience because in the legal office, I just had my secretary that I had to supervise. And suddenly <laughs> I went from one person to 100 people. Um, and what's more, that the external environment, somehow everything that could ha could go wrong went wrong that first year. And it was really, really tough um, because what happened was, um, uh, you know, there was like six yoga centers that went bust. And I had all of these yoga fanatics coming and complaining, Lynchco <laughs> members. <laughs> And it was just, you know, things that you couldn't anticipate. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, like uh, there was, of course, the aftermath of the legal, um, LegCo um, SC inquiry. And we had to implement all the 19 recommendations in a report that we did to the FS. Um, and then there was the, I don't know if you remember, you would both have been in Hong Kong, the Octopus um, card saga, yeah. where, where Octopus without the consumer knowing were selling their personal data onto um, third parties. Yeah. And that caused a big outroar and the CEO had to resign. So all of this was happening, but it was sort of like, you know, it, it was really, um, I, I find that I thrive when I work under pressure and it made me more resilient. But that was actually a big risk that I took, you know, making that <laughs> at, at, at quite an advanced age. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, obviously, you've both been regulators. Can you tell us more with that sort of vantage of, of being a regulator or having been a regulator, the role itself, how is the role evolving and, and changing given the, the disruption in the market and some of the new, you know, things like crypto coming out, for example, and, and you know, both that kind of, I guess, thought as well as um, what you think um, is going to be the evolution for the sort of regulators of the future. So maybe I'll, I'll let Nina speak first because she she was a regulator for much longer <laughs> than I. I was a regulator for six, but how many years were you, Nina? Uh, 23, 23 years. years. So yeah. I think the MA, let's yeah. first benefit from the 23 yes. years experience. <laughs> Okay, so I do agree that the role is evolving. Um, um, you take, for example, banking conduct. Um, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, the public expected the MA to look after their interests, the consumers, they expected that. Um, so the MA, which previously was more focused on prudential supervision, um, had to pump in resources to banking regulation. And so the Banking Conduct Department was established um, and we churned out a lot of regulation to protect different types of consumers including vulnerable consumers. Um, you know, we asked banks to have red and black zone. We introduced audio recording, investor education initiatives, so that the, the consumers themselves would become smart and responsible. 
However, you know, 10 years after the event, I mean, the pendulum is shifting a bit. And um, now the MA is uh, more focused on taking a balanced and responsive approach to supervision. Um, last year, the MA appointed a task force uh, comprising industry representatives to seek the view on, uh, of industry on HKMA supervisory initiatives to ensure proper outcomes in a fast evolving landscape. Um, also in the area of um, combating financial crime, what's evolved is that um, there's private and public sector cooperation, intelligence sharing. Um, there's a FIMLET that's um, been appointed. And uh, this is very exciting because criminals are becoming more and more sophisticated and really the regulators and all the enforcement agencies uh, as well as the banks have to evolve with that and keep up with, with you know, criminals. Um, so I think the sharing of intelligence is um, the first step. Um, yeah, also the MA, um, you know, because over the years there have been so many supervisory manuals and regulations and whatnot, um, is now revamping all of them, having a look at all of them and seeing how they can consolidate it and some of the defunct ones can be sort of like um, discarded. And I was actually at the PWMA summit um, a few days ago and Arthur Yoon, um, the deputy chief executive of banking, said that, um, you know, that there will be greater use of uh, reg tech and fintech. Mm. Reg tech for the supervisor and fintech for the industry. Um, when I was in the MA, um, I was sort of responsible for AML supervision, but my division had already started using a, big, a firm to use big data analytics uh, for sanction screening, control systems of the banks in this area, sanction screening. So I think that's the way to go. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's your thinking on the topic, uh, Benedict? So actually, uh, there to connect to, to what you mentioned, I did actually, uh, you're right, in uh, 2015 and 2016, I think, um, or was it? Maybe it was a bit later, a year later, I think. Uh, we, we actually did international research on the topic of fintech, and we published that in an IOSCO fintech report. And uh, the report is available online, so anyone can, can read it in detail. It was an early stage view as to, as to where fintech was going. But the key underlying uh, challenge is the following. Uh, so de facto, what fintech is, is the combination of finance and technology. And de facto, the only reason really these new sectors can thrive and grow fast is because of uh, the internet, number one. And number two, to be frank, uh, thanks to these mobile phones that we all have, these uh, these iPhones and, and smartphones that we all carry everywhere and that we're busy with every day and that have de facto changed us so much that that's exactly what we want. We only want to interact with that smartphone. So unlike 10 years ago when finance meant you go to your bank branch or you go to your broker or you go to your wealth manager and you physically talk with them as we're talking with you today, mm. that's not what's happening anymore. People want to be on their iPhone and they want to place their order, whether it is for securities, whether it is for a wealth product, whether it is for a fund, uh, and even whether it is for cryptocurrency, so to say. And that creates huge challenges because the internet is global. And, and what that means is uh, to take a jurisdictional approach becomes very, very hard. You can be jurisdictional as long as people have to go 
to a location in that jurisdiction. But when people can cross jurisdictions by putting their orders on an online platform that is elsewhere in the world, you're in a totally different scenario. So I think the greatest uh, challenge for the regulator looking ahead is international enforcement. And, and to be frank, that will apply to, to any of the things that you've mentioned, whether it is the plain investor protection angle, the suitability angle, or the, the fraud angle, but also, of course, in the AML world, right? So, so that, if anything, uh, will need to evolve much further than it is already. Now, uh, at the SFC being, uh, let's say, Hong Kong being a hub, a hub market, an IFC, as they call it, an international financial center, but a small market if you look by population of people, right? The, the SFC in Hong Kong is a very externally focused view. And secondly, uh, there is already a lot of international enforcement collaboration specifically uh, with China. So I think the, that Hong Kong can probably handle that uh, challenge. Uh, but as I said, that challenge is only going to grow and it's going to go global as opposed to staying staying small in scope. Yeah, um, so we're already kind of getting into our expert opinion um, area here, which is fantastic. So just to take a step back, Mina, um, can you give us an outline more of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority's overall responsibilities just for our listeners? Okay, well, the HKMA has a very broad mandate. Um, from reserves management to maintaining monetary stability to maintaining Hong Kong status as an international financial center um, and maintaining the stability and effective working of the banking system. And that's just a few, you know, it's really, really broad. Um, because I, I really worked on the banking side, so I will I'll maybe delve a little bit more into the banking side um, area and what the focus is there. As I mentioned earlier, Arthur was recently at this summit and he mentioned three broad areas of focus of the MA. One was RegTech and FinTech. Um, and actually, I don't know if you've been following the news, but last year, last September, the MA himself um, announced seven initiatives uh, for smart banking. And one of these was faster payment systems, which has just been rolled out. And this is a Hong Kong dollar and renminbi platform that would enable the public to make round-the-clock fund transfers in real time using mobile phone numbers or email addresses. And also banks and non-banks providers um, can participate in this. And then the other initiative under the smart banking was open API, where um, you know people will be able to access the data of banks. Um, um, and then there's research and talent development. And the MA has been working with Astri to do research on things like blockchain and other things. And then also one of these was cross-border collaboration and the FinTech supervisory box. I mean, that the MA um, had introduced a few years ago, but this time it was with all the supervisors taking part in this common sandbox, which is very exciting to so the SFC, the IA, the MA. And then virtual banking, that has caused a lot of buzz and, mm. you know, there have already been lots of lots of inquiries. And then the, the thing that I think will benefit a lot of people um, is banking made easy. A task force was established um, to work on remote onboarding and account maintenance, online finance, online wealth management. The other area that Arthur mentioned was cybersecurity. Um, the HKMA uh, is um, stepping up supervision of technology risks in response to growing cyber threats and the continued adoption of new technology by banks. Um, 
And then last but not least, it's culture. Um, you know, the financial crisis demonstrated that regulation is not sufficient. Really, um, to have lasting change, you need to have a cultural change. And so the HKMA has been focusing on capacity building in the uh, banking sector. In fact, I was in the MA when um, my department introduced this face-to-face -face meeting because previously, um, you know, we the MA just approved directors or senior management on you know, on the basis of paper uh, vetting. But then we introduced these face-to-face -face meetings and it was really, really insightful because at the very least, people really made an effort to prepare themselves and you know, try and understand their jobs. So they came before us and I personally interviewed about 40, 40 odd candidates. And some of them were just not up to the speed and they had to, you know, they had to go back and reapply. Um, but it really, the word got around and people took it very seriously. But also the MA um, has had particularly focus on IND, uh, increasing their capacity, having annual conferences. So the first one was last year and I participated in that. Um, and Andrew Bailey um, of the FCA was the keynote speaker. And the theme was cultivating culture in the banking industry. And believe it or not, over 100 INEDs attended. Um, I guess Norman said that if you don't attend, you have to have a good reason. So I think 80% <laughs> of everybody showed up, you know, which was amazing. Andrew Bailey was so impressed. Um, and then the second conference was just held a couple of weeks ago with Julie Dixon um, giving the keynote address on implementation of sustainable culture. So, and also Norman takes a group of INEDs every year to China so that they can meet the regulators just to, and you know, the INEDs have a very important role. They're a real yeah. check and balance. So it's really good to empower them. And then now there's a minimum remuneration for them, um, you know, because some of them were paid pittance. So now the circle is out. It's been out for a year or so to say that they have to have a minimum uh, pay. Actually, last year, MA initiated a bank culture reform um, to, do, uh, to promote sound corporate culture that supports prudent risk management and contributes towards incentivizing proper staff behavior. Um, so, you know, the banks have been, um, there were three pillars. One is governance, one is incentive systems, and the other pillar was assessment and feedback mechanism. So the banks um, have been, you know, given certain tasks that they have to do, include, uh, including appointing a board level committee to um, on on these things um, and to report back. So it's all, you know, very good. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, we're already seeing a, you know, a more prudent uh, conduct. Yeah. And I mean, culture continues to be a theme that we hear on many of these um, sessions and it's just incredibly important. So maybe a, a bit of a, a change in tack, but um, uh, Benedict, can you sort of share the role of the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong as well, sort of in that broad brush, what was its remit? Um, and then maybe we'll get into sort of specifically around what you were looking at from the FinTech and RegTech um, perspective and, and the work at IOSCO that you've already shared a bit, a bit of. Okay, so I'm not going to make it uh, too long because if I make it too long, I'd need to recite a whole uh, SFO, <laughs> which is the Securities and Futures Ordinance. So, in fact, uh, the, the key point is that the, the SFC administers rules and regulations that are contained in the Securities and Futures Ordinance. 
uh, and it may issue uh, new guidance, guidelines, consultation papers, etc., etc. So the SFC is actually quite neatly set up in its in its different divisions to ensure it is executing on its duties to administer the implementation of the Securities and Futures Ordinance. And it broadly uh, functions with, uh, with the following uh, divisions, enforcement, supervision, supervision of markets, which really is in charge of uh, supervising the stock exchange of Hong Kong. Uh, and then uh, aside from it, there is a corporate finance division that is focused on the listing processes. And then on top of that, there is an investment product division that is focused on on de facto investment products, including funds and ETFs, etc., uh, and overlaying it uh, is really uh, the administrative functions, including the CEO office and a number of other functions within the SFC. So that's how it's organized. So for anyone who wants to better understand uh, the SFC. The best is actually to look at the SFO and then to realize which uh, specific sections of the SFO are administered by which division of the SFC. Fantastic. Um, so now let's get into um, fintech and um, maybe if you can talk about, obviously, your views on, on digitization and technology risks um, and what's the, the sort of challenging um, areas around that and, and tell us about your new role at, at Circle. Okay, so so Circle, uh, as mentioned, uh, jointly with, uh, I would say, uh, Coinbase is uh, one of the leading uh, US slash global players in this whole new space of uh, blockchain and, and crypto. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, as I mentioned before, this is a very early uh, stage industry, but that is exactly what makes it uh, so attractive, is because uh, it is very much a building uh, role for everybody within this industry. So from my perspective, since, uh, since I'm the head of regulatory affairs for Asia and Europe, uh, what I need to do is having a lot of conversations really with regulators globally to try and lay the public policy foundations for this industry. Now, uh, what is so, uh, let's say, in, let's say different about this industry is the fact of the technology, right? The underlying technology is, is blockchain. And what it does is it actually redefines a lot of the paradigms as to how uh, the capital markets in specific have worked. So uh, you might have heard of these ICOs, initial coin offerings, and leaving alone some of the issues with the quality of the offerings. If you look at the underlying technology and what's really happening is that placement processes are condensed to much faster uh, as to the exchanges, the rating and settlement processes are condensed to much faster. So de facto, let's say uh, what happens is is a, is a placement can can be global and pretty much uh, immediate, and the uh, consequent processes such as corporate actions can actually all be automated. Uh, in the case of the exchanges, what tends to happen is that the trading and, and the settlement is pretty simultaneous, and there is also no need actually uh, for custody for those who want to do self-custody, for example. So when I mention all these things, they seem pretty basic, but when you need to reconcile that with standing rule books, it's actually very difficult because standing rule books are made in a world where all these functions are not condensed into one technology. In fact, where they're done separately by separate intermediaries and separate 
uh, players. So that's what makes this uh, challenging on a public policy front. But inversely, that is the very opportunity of this technology, is that it can make things a lot faster uh, and a lot more automated. And, and we can come back to that later. But of course, compliance can be coded as well. So that's, that's the real change there. So uh, a lot of people understand aspects of this, but haven't yet understood, I think, quite how impactful it can be on the overall of, of the processes. And as it's evolving so quickly, um, and as you say, it's very early in the stage. So what, what, what are the implications then for regulators? Like how do, they, how do they keep up with some of the things that the industry is doing? So different regulators have uh, different approaches, um, but let's say the common commonality between them is, first of all, they, they seek to understand how it impacts their rule books. So there are a very clear right. area where it impacts the rule books. Everybody is doing that. Secondly, then there are regulators who conclude really fast that this needs to lead to a new regulatory framework, a wholly new one. So not the securities regulatory framework, but the token regulatory framework. And uh, for example, you, you can take a look at the news in the last 10 days, but France is making a whole lot of progress actually in, in that area uh, with a specific focus on making a new uh, framework for this. Um, and then let's say a third group of regulators um, are, are, let's say it can be combined that they do these different things in parallel, but uh, may try to fit it in the in the regulatory framework that currently exists with 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 less significant uh, adaptations, uh, and then there is maybe a fourth group that that uh, currently does not change its regulations, and to achieve all of this and to decide on which exact position they are going to take. Um, there are, again, different approaches, those who are fully independently research-driven, then those who have uh, a soft consultation approach uh, with the industry, being the, what I mean with that is a dialogue, but uh, not a very broad or, or let's say, a, not, a, not a fully public uh, dialogue. The third uh, kind of uh, groupment, uh, I can see, is regulators who actually ask the industry to come up with rules to govern yourselves first. Uh, and that latter group is, is really interesting because uh, it means that the industry needs to come up with standards that the regulator can later possibly even adopt. So um, you might have seen actually from my CV that in the last uh, few months, I've done a lot of work in that third category. So I am de facto an advisory council member of what is called global digital finance. And when you go on the website, which is simply www.gdf.io, you can see some of the uh, code of conduct uh, that we are actually drafting. And these are principles for this uh, new industry with the specific focus on, on bringing it to a higher level of compliance because no one obviously uh, benefits from excessive uh, problems. For example, no one benefits from fraud. Okay, no one benefits from that, neither the industry or the future industry and, and, and nor do, of course, consumers. So uh, within GDF, we are, we are drafting these codes of conduct. Uh, and as I said, we have quite extensive conversations with, with regulators worldwide who are very, very happy and in fact want that open dialogue. So this is 
this is different evolutions that I'm seeing. And that's definitely very different from maybe 10 years ago where the regulators needed to have less direct dialogue with the industry. Now technology, as you know, it moves so fast. Mm. You do that in your company all the time. It, it moves so fast that unless you have a dialogue with the technologists and the technology developers, whether it is those that develop fintech or regtech or subtech, unless you're talking with them pretty much very frequently, you're going to miss the latest development. Yeah, yeah I agree with that, absolutely. That's what the MA is doing, right. has been doing for a little while. It's fascinating. I mean, there's just so much change going on everywhere mm-hmm. and that ability to keep up and, you know, as you say, either we're staying ahead of the, the, you know, the criminals who are also using the technology or evolving to make sure that everyone can trust in the, in the new instruments and the new processes that exist. Yeah. That's fantastic. And, um, and my view is all these approaches can work, right? Uh, it doesn't matter how the, di- the dialogue is actually held, in my view, but the most important is the dialogue. If you don't have that dialogue, it's, it's, it's really hard, I think, to anticipate the next uh, problem. And in my role at the SFC, actually as the FinTech contact point, which we founded there, uh, in 2015, I viewed my key role actually to be talking with people and to understand the next uh, fintech and, and tech-related development that would affect our sector or that we could use as a regulator on the data front, as, as you have uh, amply set out, that uh, Arthur, Arthur is now focused on. And what about a bit of crystal ball gazing now and about what are your, what are your predictions for the future in terms of risk regulation and, and compliance? Where do, you, where do you see things headed? It's, it's very hard to tell because uh, my, my own view is that, uh, let's say, established players will, will always uh, remain established players. But for sure, uh, there will be continued pressure on, uh, let's say, control divisions to become more automated because uh, highly uh, manual processes uh, actually present extremely high operational risk, number one. And number two, they tend to be uh, very expensive. And number three, with the emergence of all these new players, uh, they comparatively are even more expensive. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So so the, the key pressure will continue to be on the very well-established players to become uh, more efficient, including in all their risk processes through the adoption of uh, technology, including vendor technology. Yes, very good. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think technology risk is, is really something that needs to be managed. Um, cybersecurity... Yeah, and just keeping ahead of the, as you say, the criminals, or not ahead of them, at least, you know, closely behind them. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to all need to put our wits together. Absolutely. (laughs) Connecting, celebrating, and championing women in risk regulation and compliance, Risky Women Radio takes an intimate look at the rants and revelations of the top women shaping the debate and the industry. All right, we're going to move on to my favourite part, which is our risky women rants and revelations. So this is sort of your rants. your advice, your guidance, um, and uh, and some some views on you know things that we could uh, improve and change. So let's start with you, Mina. If you you know what's that one piece of advice that you would have you, you know give to your younger self? It's not your usual advice, but I really think that. 
in Hong Kong in particular, and in this day and age, it would be a real asset to be able to read and write Chinese. <laughs> yeah, and so if somebody was um, sort of embarking on their career, that's my advice to them. Uh, because really, China is now a superpower. And you know, even if you look at these uh, listed companies in Hong Kong, there's so many mainland companies that are listed here. And then there's the Belt and Road Initiative and the Greater Bay Area Initiative. I, if you want to do business with the mainland Chinese, or you want, you know, even in our area, risk and compliance, it really is an asset to have the Chinese language. I knew, th I mean, in the MA, for instance, um, it's a real asset to have Chinese now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I speak Chinese, but unfortunately, I don't read and write. I wish I had persevered because um, in 1990, I had started and then I got pregnant, so I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I even spoke it. So that's uh, at least something. Now, what's your one thing that you could change? You know, if you were the ruler of the world for the day, what's what one thing would you change? Um, ruler of the world. <laughs> well, uh, I I don't like all of this, you know, uh, patriotism that they're talking about now, and you know, nationalism. Mm. Uh, I would like to have more. Um, sort of like countries working together, you know, back to globalization, not everybody just looking after themselves, you know, China first or America first. And, yeah. You know, I just, this is, I know that, you know, <laughs> this is unfortunate, but I, I just hope that this is a passing phase, that, you know, brighter days ahead. I, I couldn't agree more. Now, Benedict, on to you. What's your, you know, advice to your younger self? Hmm. I don't know. I, I look. Maybe the point is go with the flow. <laughs> so you can't predict everything in in your career. So uh, let's say I kind of uh, every single move I've made, I thought I could predict and 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 all of it. And the reality is you can't. Uh, and and the other thing is, uh, while you move, don't overanalyze because you won't be able to predict anyway. Uh, until you're in a new environment or a new company, you actually won't be able to predict what the culture is. To the point of culture, actually, even though I do think you can come up with some indicators and internal controls, you actually only know how the people behave until you're in that company. So every single time I've made a move, I've, I've been overthinking it and trying to predict it. So let's say, I, I think economics are fairly easy to predict. I think the the uh, the drive towards uh, technology, automation and, and digitalization, that's all predictable. But what's not predictable is how happy you're going to be in, in the next career move. So you have to go with the flow and you have to believe a little bit uh, in, in faith with that. So let's say towards my earlier points in this conversation, uh, when I came to Hong Kong, that was like total coincidence, right? I was really actually not looking for a job here, but I was introduced uh, to Goldman. And, and when they offered me a job after two days of interviews and, and literally the day that I was going to leave, I thought there is an aspect of faith in that. And so I explained that to my parents. I'm not sure they agreed with the faith <laughs> point, but there you go. I did it. Uh, and, and I would say that the same has been true in nearly every of my moves. You have to go with the flow. If, if something is calling you, then, then go for it and don't think you can predict it. And then the inverse, I was just yesterday actually advising a woman who is um, actually also 20 years in her career. 
uh, and who just thinks she she is not seen for the qualities that she has in the job. And to be frank with you, having spoken with her and having seen what she can accomplish in her private life in terms of project management, like she started a whole brand on her own, I definitely tend to agree actually in her case that she's not in the right job. So, uh, and by the way, the job is to be in her case, an executive uh, assistant. So the thing is she's frustrated in the job. She doesn't, but I guess it's just more simple. An executive assistant job is probably not the right match for somebody who has potential um, to do run your own brand, let's put it like that. So sometimes in life, even though nobody actually likes to move, sometimes if you're not uh, appreciated or if you think you're not used to your full potential, listen to yourself and, and don't stay forever in that situation because you're not doing anybody a favor, neither your employer and certainly not yourself. So those are the two pieces of advice I would have. And now you are the ruler of the world. <laughs> What's the thing that you're going to change? Well, I, I still think, uh, and everybody who knows me knows my very strong views on ESG, <laughs> which stands for environmental, social and governance. Uh, and I would say that of these two, I've always said to me, the E and the S are the ones where most progress has to be made. Uh, that is on environmental. I think we are not doing ourselves and our future generations any favors. Uh, and I do think that uh, climate change is already a proven fact. Uh, I think anybody who's going to wait for further proof of that uh, is already leading the world into excessive risk. Uh, and I think that if you've looked at that typhoon that we just witnessed a few weeks ago, and actually, I'm just now having the view here on the park and the birdcage. In fact, that lovely birdcage is now closed for six months because probably a 500-year-old banyan tree fell on it. And that tree fell over because of that enormous typhoon, which is very much an example of extreme weather that people have long predicted as part of climate change. So of all that remains my, my uh, let's say, personal pet peeve, I guess you call it, uh, but secondly, another topic that you, Kim, have done an extreme amount of uh, leadership on and that uh, both you, Kim, and Mina and I and all of us mm. feel very strongly about is the S in ESG uh, and, and within it, uh, of course, the topic of anti-slavery because when we think about those smaller things, as I just said, of for example, you're not happy in a job, then, then change, for example, that is so minor compared to the people who are in, in a situation of, of de facto uh, modern slavery. So I am uh, very, very happy that this topic is becoming to the forefront uh, of policymakers' uh, thought process. It's a very difficult topic uh, because obviously not every economy is yet ready to let go of certain aspects of, of slavery. And some of them will never go. But uh, on the overhaul, to, to actually raise awareness is, is very important. So to me, the green journey, which I've advocated for for now so many years, I think we're coming to a point where the world leaders are fully focused on it. And, and we're talking about the world's foremost leaders are focused on it, except for some, though. <laughs> yeah. I, won't, I won't name those. But uh, China is very focused. UK is very focused, etc. Uh, but for the topic of modern slavery, it, it's still about five years behind in awareness. 
absolutely. So some fabulous advice and guidance there. Thank you very much. Risky Women is a vibrant network at the centre of a global community in a rapidly growing, evolving and influential industry. Given the continued pace of change, our Rapid Fire Round revisits the most pressing topics to share ideas and offer listeners new perspectives. Okay, we will, um, Benedict, let's go with you on our Risky Women Rapid Fire Round. <laughs> what one word can you use to sum up um, governance, risk and compliance? I would say uh, always a lot of fun dealing with new things. Okay, and your top risk for 2018 or maybe we should be looking at 2019 almost I now. think it's very clear we're stuck in the middle of a trade war and it's a it's a very big problem uh, you know this uh, exactly what Nina said this strength of deglobalization uh, globalization has on 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 balance served the globe uh, very well and trade wars uh, are a very high uh, overhang over a lot of leading economies the cure for the cost of compliance the cure for the cost of compliance is very clearly technology, uh, and of all of them, of course, blockchain can uh, eliminate many, many processes uh, in, in, in how you do things, as I previously said, and consequently, uh, compliance can also build, be built in. Biggest technology impact on compliance and risk? Uh, the biggest, I would say, is blockchain, blockchain. again. Um, and your outlook for the year ahead, are you optimistic, pessimistic or uncertain? I'm always an optimist. Uh, the, the only thing is, of course, those trade wars are, are not good for, for stock prices in certain markets. Yes. Okay, Mina, on to you. One word to sum up the world from a governance, risk and compliance perspective. Evolving. <laughs> nice. Um, your top risk for... 2018 and 19. <laughs> uh, nationalism or yes. populism. Yes. Um, cure for the cost of compliance? Has to be technology. Biggest technology impact on compliance and risk? Uh, RegTech and FinTech. And outlook for the year ahead. Are you optimistic, pessimistic or uncertain? Because of the trade war, pessimistic. You know, if you read the South China Morning Post, um, the headlines today is wars to the trade war is here to stay. Yeah. So I'm pessimistic in the short term, but in the medium and longer term, I'm optimistic. I think if you don't have pain, you don't have gain. So this is <laughs> we're just going through in a stage we have to adjust. You know, like China has to learn how to be more self-sufficient and di diversify, etc. Fantastic! It's been wonderful having you two risky women join me today. Thank you very much and. Um, it's been a delight to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you for listening to this exciting episode of Risky Women Radio to connect, champion and celebrate women in risk regulation and compliance. I'm Kimberly Cole, based in Hong Kong. For more information on the Risky Women Global Network, head to our website in the episode notes and please be part of the ongoing conversation by subscribing to this podcast, connecting with us at Risky Women on Twitter, or even reaching out to me directly by email.